behavioral economics is the first principle to economic design, then the second basic principle would be supply and demand. Supply and demand is also existence in the traditional classical economics that we know. It's one of the foundational principles in economics in general. So this episode is going to be real simple and basic. I don't, really, I don't want to assume that everyone understands everything. And you know, even I don't know a lot of the different things. And I always have to go back to basics. So I thought this would be a, a very simple and quick, easy episode to make sure that if you if you're not sure about the fun the fundamentals of supply and demand, why it why it exists, what does it mean, how does it affect the supply and demand, you can always come back to this episode. So to give you an, a very brief idea of supply and demand. So before we get super nerdy and technical, let's get started with something a bit more basic and foundational. So how behavior how does behavior economics and supply and demand affect this economics design, or why are they the basic principles? Because it's all about economic engineering. In economics design, instead of using models to describe how the, the market works, we're, we're designing these incentives, we're designing these rules that will be implemented in the ecosystem. And that's, why, and that's how we get to define and decide and design the supply and demand. In this episode, we'll talk about the basics of supply and demand, which is supply and demand 101, how to govern supply and demand, and how can we apply them in token economics. This episode series is called Economics Design, duh. And in this episode, we want to understand and uncover how to design different economics and, and design the economics of different virtual systems and virtual economies. So we'll also chat about various case studies and run interview sessions with the various designers and different types of designers. More generally, we will talk about economics and the design of digital ecosystems or digital systems. It can be blockchain-based, frequent flyer points, or even digital video games. So at the end of the day, we are designing economics. We are we're designing economics via, via rules and mechanisms. As a designer, you have a set of objectives that you, you, want to, you want to achieve. And the challenge here is, how do you implement that? How, what kind of rules and mechanisms can you put in place to implement these objectives? So we have, we have behavior economics and we have supply and demand that I mentioned. And these two are very important because they stir up different kind of emotions within us. What do I mean? Behavior economics will be talking to the irrational side of us, and supply and demand will talk to the rational side of us. The thing is, everything is on a spectrum. You don't have someone that's 100% rational or 100% irrational. You have someone slightly in between. And that's why when we're designing these rules and mechanisms, we want to make sure that we have the, the right kind of rules to cater to the different types of people. Because in your ecosystem, you have all these decentralized participants, different types of people, and they have a varying level of rationality and irrationality. So when we have behavioral economics and the basic supply and demand embedded into rules and, and incentives, then we can, we can speak directly to the rational and irrational side of people. So that's why these are the two basic fundamentals or two basic principles that I want to get started with. And if you have not caught the episode on behavioral economics, it's just the previous episode, episode four. Okay, so let's get started. Supply and demand, supply and demand 101. In economics, we always like to talk about supply and demand. They're basically two lines that crosses each other. They are in opposite directions. And usually when they intersect, that point where the two lines cross each other, we call that the market equilibrium. That's the market price, or that the point will show the price and quantity that both the sellers and buyers are willing to trade. I mean, when you trade, you need to both agree on the price and quantity, right? Otherwise, it's, it's like one person selling oranges and one person selling um, cars. You, you can't you can't agree on something because you don't have a, ba a basis to agree upon the exchange. So 
these lines, these two lines, when they intersect, they tell us what's the condition to agreement and they, they're willing to trade or transact. So what, what, the, what do the lines mean? What do the lines represent? The lines represent the relationship between both parties or how, the, how each party view the good, the, the object itself. So when prices are low, when prices are you know, super cheap, then buyers will want to buy more. Buyers would be interested to, to purchase and consume more. So buyers have an upward sloping graph. So when prices are low, they buy. When quantity is low, or when prices are low, they buy less. When, no wait, when prices, when prices are, sorry, it's when prices are high, buyers buy less. And then when prices are low, buyer buys more. Sellers on the other hand, is a different thing. Because sellers are incentivized to make money. And how do they make money? They make money by selling. And when prices are high, they want to sell more because that's how they make more money. When prices are low, then they want to sell less because they don't make so much money and there are some costs to just producing that good. So sellers have an opposite direction. When it's when prices are low, they sell low. When prices are high, they want to sell high. Uh, they want to sell more. So when, when these two lines intersect and they cross each other, then there's a point in the middle where they, they cross or they, there's just a point where they cross and that point will determine the quantity to be sold and the price that both parties are willing to pay or receive for that quantity. So that is the specific price where both parties are comfortable with um, exchanging or transacting. So for example, when you go to Southeast Asia, or when you come to Southeast Asia, because I'm in Southeast Asia, sometimes you get to negotiate and bargain for goods. So a t-shirt, you have a retail price that says um, whatever amount and you can nego negotiate with the sellers the seller and usually when you buy more they're willing to, to cut the, the price to a bit lower and then you can negotiate and, and agree to that pricing so that that negotiation that that um, agreement to purchase something that the whole bargain bargain mechanism is really just seller saying this price buyer agrees or not agree then seller comes back with a counter price and then buyer agrees or disagree and you just you know, which is basically when the two line meets, because no one knows what their lines are. But as the seller says, okay, at this price, are you willing to buy? The buyer realizes that, okay, no, my, my curve, my line, my demand line doesn't touch that point. So I'm not willing to do that. And then everyone keeps adjusting until they find the right point where they transact. So that's a, that's a example of buy, uh, supply and demand. So we have that in crypto or in token systems as well. And we'll talk about that a bit later, but can you imagine if you have to keep renegotiating with every individual that you purchase, what, that you want to buy from, and you have to keep doing this process all over again? It's not very efficient. So let's start with the bias line that goes like this. The bias line is also called a demand curve. The demand curve is different from everyone. So some people who really love chocolates will have a, um, a different type of curve, whereas some, person who, some, some people who don't like chocolates, maybe you know the curve is is a bit different. So everyone has different types of, of demand curves. But when we are talking about demand curves in general, um, in this in this episode and you know most episodes moving forward, it's about an aggregate demand curve. That means I take everyone's individual curve, I combine them together to make you know a big curve. That's the curve that we're talking about. So there are a lot of factors that affect how much the buyer wants to buy at a specific price. So for example, the number of substitutes available, consumer preferences, and the shifts in complementary products. So complementary products would be something like, um, let's say if you play video games, and if, if the console for PlayStation drops, then the demand for, cons 
for PlayStation games will increase because now people are looking for ways to use their console. So these are complementary products. So instead of affecting the demand of one specific thing, you can you can affect it in the complementary products that comes with it. So that's this, that's the buyer's line. Then you have the supply the supplier's line, the seller's line. So we called it the supply curve. Sometimes it's a curve, sometimes it's a straight line, depending on your graphs. So similarly, we have a lot of different suppliers. They have different curves, and then we just aggregate them together to get an aggregate supplier's curve. And there are a lot of factors that also affect how much suppliers are willing to produce at specific price. And those will be stuff like production capacity, production cost, like labor and minerals. The number of competitors will also affect how much supply that the businesses can create. And other kind of factors, you know, factors that are secondary but also very important, such as the material availability, the weather, the reliability of supply chain. So for example, in this coronavirus that's happening right now, it's affecting a lot of different suppliers' line. If you are someone who manufactures um, masks, like in China, they, they manufacture a lot of masks and ventilators, but during the, but during the shutdown of the entire country, then you, you, just can't, you just can't manufacture them, right? These are, these are production costs, these are labor costs that you, can't, you need to factor in because you just can't get them. You, can't, you can pay a lot of money, but it's a, it's a shutdown and you just can't go to the factory and produce them. So these are factors affecting the supply. When the production cost goes up or you know, the, a main component is just not there, then how can, you, how can you supply anything? So the quantity will just reduce because there are a lot of things that's a bit not, not within our control. Or things like um, number of competitors. So if you want to start a ventilator machine now, a factory now, then you know there are a lot of there are a lot of competitors out there, and a lot of these big factories that exist, and they don't usually produce medical equipment. But now because of the virus, because of the demand, then they are also willing to change their production products to be to be more medical equipment specific, so that you can cope with the the increasing demand today. So that's just the basics of supply and demand. Basically, it just we just want to understand how much we consume and at what price. Or at what price, how much are we willing to consume. When we get these together, then we can see will that transaction happen when you have buyers and sellers coming into play. Very simple, very basic, right? Okay, so let's move on to the second part. How do we govern? The governance of supply and demand. Why do we need to govern supply and demand? Because it affects our logical decision making. Remember I told you that behavioral economics is about... Um, prompting the irrational side of us to do something, then supply and demand would be, would be governing in um, a more logical sense. So we, have, we need governance of supply and demand so that it will affect our logical decision-making um, skill sets or decision-making actions. So a few factors that affect the, the shift in supply lines. So supply, you can have, you can have movements in supply lines. So back to the, uh, back to the example of um, argue, uh, negotiating or bargaining in Southeast Asia for, for something in the night market like a t-shirt or something you're basically going up and down the supply curve or demand curve to find the right match where both both the lines intersect but sometimes the line can also move so usually the line is stagnant and and then the demand crosses and you find the intersect sometimes the, the supply can shift left can shift left or right and then as it shifts, then it changes. It changes the intersect, right? So it's also important to understand what affects the supply curve and demand curve. How do you, how do you allow these curves to shift? So 
in supply, there are different, different types of supply that we talk about. We have, what I'm showing you is just a very, a very um, rational supply curve where more demand, it, it, uh, it's upward sloping. But sometimes you have different types of supply curve that it's not just upward sloping in a very nice line. For example, you can have fixed supply. Fixed supply is where you have a limit to the supply and limit on the resources because it could be, you know, it's just the limited amount, like land. There's only so much land in the world and there's only so much buildings you can build in that little plot of land because that's that's the limit, it's fixed supply. Or you can also look at supply as in, in central banks, there's a supply to the monetary, um, the, the cash that we have or the cash available because can you imagine if we keep changing the, the money supply every single day, the central bank just decides to reduce or increase money supply? That'd be very complicated and unnecessary and it will create a huge mess and a lot of governance um, intermediaries to, to do that. So in the short term period, the supply is fixed. Then we also have diminishing supply. So supply that, that reduces, disappears and hard, that's you know, hard to attain. So for example, when you know, like when things are used up, then you can't replace them, or it takes a very long time to replace them. Stuff like um, oil, petrol, um, diamond, some form of minerals, where once you use them, they're gone, and it disappears. So it's diminishing supply. Then we have fluctuating supply, where it you know goes up, up and down, and it changes. That will that can be depending on something really arbitrary, and you you can't control that. So for example, um, gas or solar energy or you know hydroelectricity where you can't really control that and it just fluctuates you, you can't control the fluctuating supply and lastly you have the diminishing increase in supply that means that the supply increases but it increases at different rates and it increases um, at, a, at a lower rate so that will be an example of oil like um, where the total supply is extracted by OPEC and you know in the recent oil crisis or in the recent oil um, the current news in, in petrol prices and oil prices, what they're doing now, because we have a limited, uh, we have some supply that's available to be used, but they are reducing the amount of supply of oil that is being extracted and produced every day. So there's the diminishing increase in, in supply for oil. So that's just the supply side, and now let's go to the demand side. The demand for a particular good or product will be very different in different situations. So we have to be clear of the type of demand we're talking about. And, and when we understand the type of demand, we can create the right kind of value add or the right kind of um, use cases to boost the demand. So once again, there are different types of demand. First one will be effective demand. So it's the classical demand where um, high prices, low quantity, low prices, you want to demand a lot. So it's a very classical uh, demand, demand, understanding of demand that we know of. The second is called latent demand. It's all also known as potential demand. And that would be stuff like, uh, stuff that is not yet expressed in the market. It's just a potential that it will do very well. And this will be stuff like, you know, um, IPOs or, or pre-IPOs kind of stuff or a lot on the VC, like venture capital market or a lot in startups when they see a potential in this, in this um, product and, and create demand into it for it. Or something like pre-order. Pre-order is also a sign of potential demand. Like I think uh, right now, the a lot of people are trying to pre-order the iPhone, the iPhone, the new iPhone XE, but it's not open yet. 
but the fact that a lot of people are already talking a lot about it saying that you know i'll buy i'll purchase uh, you should get one it's a really great phone that is one way to get an understanding of the potential or latent demand and latent demand is also good because it it reflects what the effective or the the general demand that we we talk about so it can give give us a little understanding to predict to predict that the third one is derived demand so it's a proxy so um for something is demanded because something else that is related is also in demand so for example um when you have more electronic cars that's driving on the road then you have more demand for charging stations or when you have more iot products that's being produced or being used then you have more demand for server spaces amazon actually gets most of its revenue i think like 90 something percent of its revenue from servers the amazon server so a lot of people are demanding server space because everything else is now being hosted online so that these are derived demands then you have composite composite demand so composite demand are you know basic goods that have more than one use cases or one use case so for example if you're a chef then you probably are demanding a lot of butter a lot of oil uh, a lot of garlic a lot of onions onion because they are useful to be uh, used in a lot of other dishes so it's not just for one specific thing but this is like a basic demand that will be a that will be creating a demand for other other ingredients and other goods but a lot more other goods then you have joint demand joint demand is where something is positively related to another thing like fish and chips um, cereal and milk where one thing increases in demand the other will also increase in in demand because they are they're just complementary people use people have them together and they're positively related so one increase the other one also increases and lastly you have competitive demand where things are close substitutes to each other when something rises something else falls so for example when you have a lot of tea then when the demand of Yorkshire tea or when the prices of Yorkshire tea increases then you buy less of that and you buy something else instead you buy I don't know like Earl Grey tea or Twinings tea or some some other tea so these are called substitutes to each other and they could have negative demand or maybe um, different types of relationships with each other then you also have a lot of things that affects the the demand curve you know it's not just about moving or the shape of it but the, dif the different types of shape and how they change the shape of the demand curve so stuff would be like income taste and preferences variety expectations or speculation uh, regulations and there are a lot of different factors that can affect demand so why are we understanding about demand and supply and how to govern it because we're going to apply it to token economics and we're going to understand the the crypto examples of it and how can we apply them to the crypto world so we're going to number three application to token economics so in the crypto example, let's go back to, to the whole supply and demand and the different factors. With supply, what are the four factors? Do you remember? Fixed supply, diminishing supply, uh, fluctuating supply, and diminishing increase in supply. So you have four types. So with fixed supply, that's something that, you know, it's, it's fixed. You, you can't really change it. Um, and the, the supply, the total supply is just out there because it's just like that because it's designed in this way or because you just want to have less uh, intervention you, you will change them in the long run but in the short run it's just fixed so I was thinking of a couple of examples I think in the end I just decided with CryptoKitties because sure you, in CryptoKitties you have an increase in supplies and kitties uh, you have your kitty will mate with another kitty to come out with a new kitty 
So there's an increase in supply. But in the short term, because it takes time for, for the kitties to match and have little kitties. So in the short term, the supply of crypto kitties are fixed. And that's why, um, yeah, I think that would be a, a good example. If you have a better example, just let me know because I do want to update this example. I, th I think there, there could be a better, better example to this. But right now, oh, there's a, okay, now that I think about it, there is another example with fixed supply. Okay, two examples. One is an esports thing. In, in the blockchain space, there is a game that has, it's like a virtual world where you can buy plots of land and it's, it's all a game. So people kind of like borrow die um, to build to build on this game and to, to buy land and build things on this land and this land is limited because there's only so much land that the developers made so that's one example that's fixed supply the other example would be stuff like um, uh, security security tokens that are talking about property so for example I securitize an entire building or entire apartment and people can buy uh, the security token of the property per square foot. And there's only so much square foot that's available in a building, right? So that's also a fixed supply in a way. I can think of a specific project and I don't want to be supporting random projects. So I think um, I'll just leave it up to you to figure out what projects are out there that is doing this kind of stuff. But in general, these are fixed supply. Second is diminishing supply. So diminishing diminishing supply means the supply is just being 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 taken away and gone and reducing. And the example that we had before was stuff like um, diamonds or minerals and once it's being used up, then it's just gone. Or fossil fuel, you know, when it's used up, it's gone. In the crypto example would be um, the BNB token, so the Binance token that is in the exchange. It's hyper deflationary and they burn a specific amount of tokens every time. Every few period until, a until some amount of tokens is being burnt. So quite a few exchanges are doing that to their, ex their own exchange tokens. So diminishing supply is, it seems to be quite big for exchange tokens. Next is fluctuating supply. So I have not really seen so much of them. The last time I saw one, um, so one of the big examples of them would be synergy shares. So basically you want to create a stable coin or yeah, a stable token, a coin that doesn't really change, fluctuate in its value. And then you have uh, a secondary market that defines the value of this and that supply changes chain changes, and it reflects the, the market demand of this token. So then in the past, there was this project called Carbon, I think, but it has uh, shut down since. Great people, but the SEC didn't, didn't allow it to continue existing. But this in, that's an example. Um, I can't think of any projects because I didn't really dive into them and I don't want to be just taking any random projects because I feel that it's there's a due diligence I need to do due diligence on my part before I tell you guys about any projects. And lastly, you have diminishing increase in supply. And what's the best example? You probably know it. It's just Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has a fixed supply, but that's in the long run. In the short run, where we're looking at a snapshot of today, it is increasing in supply at a diminishing amount. So it's increasing every, every day and every period it will re increase less and less and less and less and less until it reaches its f full supply its total supply or its fixed supply which is 21 million bitcoins so that is an example where it's increasing in a um, reduction level and that's because we're looking at it at a, sh a snapshot a short term 
So, some things for you to consider when deciding the supply schedule. First, do you need governance to control the supply of tokens? An example for governance to control the supply of the, of the tokens would be the central bank. The central bank controls our money supply and the money that we use. And they don't change that every day. They change that you know, once in a while. So in the short time, in the short period, it's a fixed supply. In the long time, it requires you know, a lot of analysis, a lot of different considerations before you change the governance of it. So if you're looking, and this, this is an, an important thing to think about because when you're looking at your token, your token functions, your token function will also determine uh, if, what kind of governance is needed for the, the to control the supply of tokens. For example, are you looking at a protocol layer token like Filecoin? So these are utility tokens, or tokens as a currency, and these are like money monetary tokens, like money tokens, like BTC or USDT. Because of the different types of token functions, utility versus security versus pack money or money then they need different types of gov governance. Not just governance for the token itself, but governance for the supply of tokens. So these are things you need to consider. Second is, what's the purpose of the token? Why do they exist? For example, we talked about uh, exchange tokens just now, the BNB tokens. And they exist for a specific kind of reasons, and maybe because of that, to fulfill the function of that, you need to have a diminishing supply. Whereas if you have stuff like um, BTC, which is a currency, then you need diminishing increase in supply because it achieves the objective of BTC, what BTC wants to achieve. So based on your different purposes of tokens, your different functions of tokens, why the tokens exist, you have different kind of governance for, for uh, supply. And um, you also have the how complex the system is, how complex the tokens are. For example, you can have a PEC token. So it's really simple, you know, with USDT, with Tether, it's one US dollar in, one US, USDT being minted. Very simple, very basic. You don't really need so much governance. You don't really need so much governance for the supply because it's $1 in, one coin out. One coin go back in, $1 comes out. And then you also have uh, synthetic tokens or very complicated tokens or tokens with only one function or two objectives or different kind of players or it's a dual token connection and system. And all of them will increase the complex complexity of how you govern the supply of these tokens. And lastly, the fourth, the fourth thing to consider is what kind, of, what kind of behaviors you want to encourage. So for example, we talk about BTC, it's, it's diminishing increase in supply. And if you look from a game theory perspective, we have another an episode on game theory soon. It's what kind of trade-off you're looking at, what kind of actions, what kind of strategies you want people to be playing, what kind of actions you want them to be doing. You know, because it's because for, for Bitcoin, you it's increasing in a decreasing manner, so you have less and less Bitcoins coming out. That means Bitcoin gets more and more precious Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is, is quite scarce. So in the end, people start looking at Bitcoin as a store of value, which is very important for Bitcoin's perspective because Bitcoin wanted to be an alternative to the very messy financial market and like a lot of scams that's out there. So the kind of model that you have to, to govern your supply of the tokens directly affects the behaviors that you want to achieve. Remember, once again, go back to the foundations, go back to the basic. We talk about behavior economics, we talk about supply and demand. Behavior economics is about governing the irrational side of people, and then supply and demand is governing the rational side of people. And with all of these things that we talk about, how do we govern supply? We're not even talking about demand yet, we're just talking about supply. With supply, we are governing the actions of, of people, people's behaviors, and then we can complement that with whatever behavioral economics that we have in place to, to make sure that people are moving towards 
or people are behaving in the way that achieves the, the objective, the overall objective that your token ecosystem wants to create. And that's why it's so important. I know that supply and demand is like a super basic uh, topic that a lot of people sometimes just forget, just goes over their head, which is like a plane, you know? So it's easy to forget about them because you're so basic. But because you're so basic, we have to pay attention to them because they, they form a very important part to how we design ecosystems and how do we govern all these tokens that we're talking about. Okay, so let's go to demand before I, I continue way too much. Demand. So there, there are five types of six types of demand. The first one is effective demand. So the classical, the classical um, when prices are low, people want to want to uh, demand more quantity. So uh, that would be stuff like um, Bitcoin, or you can just see in in, in trade in general. When, when Bitcoin prices fell a lot in, I think, 18 March, last, uh, 18 March 2020, it fell to 4,800, and then people were just going, going to buy it up because the prices were low, and then people were willing to, to demand more, and then people were buying them up. And then now, prices are much higher, and people are not demanding, or people are not purchasing as, as many anymore. You know, very basic, simple understanding. And then you have potential, potential or latent demand, so this is not this is not expressed yet in the market. So I would say a good example would be so the thing I, I like about about crypto is that you have a lot of testings. You have a lot of beta tests. You have you have these you know like crowdfunding sort sort of thing to get an uh, an idea of the potential demand for these goods. So um I would like to talk more about you know pretend, uh, protocol layer protocol layer tokens like Filecoin. It I. I don't know to what level it's being released now, but I know it has been released on a, te a testnet, and they're doing a lot of a lot of very good research in terms of designing the protocol and the the economics and the, the, the game theory part, the Byzantine part, computer science part of Filecoin. Very very interesting things going on, and people are demanding so so many Filecoin, a lot of Filecoin, and people really believe in this product. So this is a potential demand where it could boost Filecoin's. Um, demand in the future when it's you know fully released for the public to use and we have another one which is a uh, derived demand which is as a proxy so I would I would use the example of ethereum once again this is also part of um, it's part of information theory which will have another uh, episode on it but when ethereum is doing is doing a great job because a lot of people are being built are building on ethereum and the more people build, are building on ethereum it means the demand of ethereum will increase because transactions are when transactions are being done, you know, as uh, one of the spokes of, it, of Ethereum or one of the different things that Ethereum has, then it it will increase the demand of Ethereum or gas for transactions to be flowing. And that's why um, around 18 March again, the gas fees for to make a transaction on Ethereum was so high because everyone was was moving a lot of things on, on the dApps that are built on Ethereum. Not Ethereum itself, but the dApps built on Ethereum. And because a lot of these transactions are going on, then it really affected the prices of Ethereum uh, transactions and like the guest transactions for Ethereum. And it caused a lot of problems, but we're not talking about that today. Basically, these are these are proxy proxy demands. Then you have composite goods, so goods that have that has more than one use. So I guess an example would be interoperability of tokens. So Bancor's token is allows you to interrupt between Thinktron, EOS, uh, and ETH and Ethereum all the dApps built on these blockchain platforms and you can use it to, it has more than one use. It's not just a, a way to transact between, to exchange between Ethereum, uh, Ethereum dApp 
that tokens, but you can also exchange with a lot of various other tokens built on EOS and Tron. Then we have, comp uh, we have joint demand. Joint demand is when one product is positively related to the other, the other product. Um, I would say, I know ETFs and like DAOs, or example would be like PyDAO, they're not super big in the DeFi space yet. But basically, uh, just imagine a trade for a basket of crypto goods or crypto tokens, and it's being traded. So the more people demand these tokens, the more it will affect the the different to the different tokens that's in the basket. So for example, if you have a basket that has oranges, apples, and bananas, and everyone keeps wanting to buy these baskets, then the individual demand for apple, bananas, and and oranges will also increase. In the same way, these are like comp joint demand where these ETFs of all these different tokens are being put in a basket and when the basket increases in demand then it will also affect the demand for all these individual little tokens. And lastly competitive demand, so these are close substitutes to each other and it's very common in blockchain worldwide because we have hard forks and soft forks and that would be stuff like you know BTC versus BCH and then it's always fighting and, and, um, uh, and, and always in competition if it's good or bad, you know, I'm not here to, to make a judgment. If you want to just leave your comments below, I would love to read them. Uh, I, I don't think it's either good or bad. It really de depends on why the competition exists, how is one item better than the other, and if competition really introduces innovation or competition for the sake of competition and it adds zero value to users, then that's kind of pointless. So, so some demand use cases. Some demand use cases would be so far, um, I'll just list them out and we'll talk about them in the future. Stuff like um, data, data staking, uh, governance, decision making, uh, discount tokens, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, um, general voting. So governance would be more governance form of voting, like very high level. General voting would be just as individuals we're voting. Uh, right, right to work, you know, right to use the tokens and right to be part of the ecosystem. Uh, we'll talk about all these more specific use cases in the future episodes, but just give you some ideas of how use cases can be can be created and derived to affect demand in general and, and in a very logical way. Then we have the behavior economics to complement it. Okay, so before we end, just want to conclude, because this is a basic episode, I don't want to start with, I don't want to have any um, three discussion questions because I think it's good, it's quite basic. Don't want you to be thinking too much as a funda fundamental um, understanding piece. So this episode covers the basic fundamentals of supply and demand and how it relates to tokens. Sometimes it is so basic that it goes over our head and we don't think so much about it. But I just want to bring this episode, or I want to use this episode to bring us back to the fundamentals before things get complicated. Because when things get complicated, the complication will not lie in the foundations. The foundations will always stay the same. They're called foundations for a reason. And when things get complicated and we get lost in the complication, we can always come back to the fundamentals and we can start building from a simple, simple way and then we make it more you know, complicated, more abstract, more, more um, sophisticated after that. And fundamentals are good because they don't change. They are always stable, they're fundamentals. So once we get that right, we can build super funky models after that. And that's what we're gonna do in the next few episodes. So drop any questions that you have down in the comments. If you have, if you have an episode that you want to get, you can, or you want to learn about, you can also drop them in the comments or message me on LinkedIn or you can tweet me. And you can also get the episode as a newsletter form. If you go to Substack, I'll, I'll, I'll link them in the, YouTube, in the YouTube below as well. So till then, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.